Hello, Furidashi listeners. In this, our 100th episode, all right, <laughs> we finally tackle 2013's The Last of Us. While we acknowledge that the story is, well, arguably just kind of okay, we also dissect the game's level and encounter design to see how The Last of Us creates compelling experiences for the player. We also look at the companion system and how the game elicits empathy through the complex interactions between Joel and Ellie and the perspectives the game forces us to adopt. If you like what we do, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash foodidashi, where you'll receive bonus content like an extra full episode every month. There's no need to feel obligated, though, and whatever you choose, we're glad you're here to share our oddball game dev journey together. And so with that, on with the show. Welcome to this week's super special, secret, fantastic, I guess not so secret, really non Patreon. <laughs> 100th episode! 100 episodes! Yes! Well, this, I mean, this is I, we've done more episodes than that, but it's the 100th numbered episode. It is the 100th numbered episode, and I, th- I think that's what's the most important here, okay? Is it's like a 100 year anniversary, but it's like wow. One, this is game development, and even making a podcast as part of game development. Yeah. So first of all, we wanted to say thank you so much for listening and subscribing to our Patreon to all of our Patreon listeners out there. We could not have done this without you, and having 100 podcast like numbered episodes is just is incredible. Really, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. I, I don't actually think that when we started this, I ever have thought about us creating a hundred episodes. Like it never really occurred to my mind no. that we would be here. No. And now here we are and we're going to keep doing this and then we're going to get to 200 episodes and then what am I going to do? Am I going to cry? Because I'm already tearing up. So yeah, I I mean, our, our Patreon subscribers are important to us. And so if you want to sign up for our Patreon, go to patreon.com forward slash foodidashi. Um, and if you do so, <clears throat> you're not just like shoveling money at us. You get a bonus episode every month and even occasional bonus like content that we put up there. So it's $5 a month. It's an incredible value because... In the Patreon episodes are really where we get into sort of like the theoretical discussions, a lot more sort of like practical hands-on, you know, game dev stuff. So if that's the sort of thing that you're interested in and you want more of that, that's where you have to go. We still talk about those things in our free episodes, but the Patreon episodes are really where to go to sort of get the the juicy meat. The meat. Whereas this is like the frost. Oh my gosh! I can't believe you just said like the meat of the game development because I swear every time I, every time I get into like a discussion, it's like this is how the sausage gets made. Like, welcome to AAA development, everyone. If you want to, okay, yeah. Well, what's go the, from what's indie the, what's to AAA, the, what's the you can okay, what go is the to our version of that metaphor. Then? Our beyond yeah. sausage, you our know, because we're already using Unreal Engine. So oh, that's well. true. Yeah, Unreal. <laughs> Achieving the impossible, meat. Um, 
I'm okay, speaking everyone. Of, I'm speaking of meat, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Anyway, speaking of meat and fleshy substances, today for our 100th episode, well, you know, it's very topical and we're trying to be a little bit more like on trend, I guess you yeah. could say. is the By talking about a game from 2013, we're being very topical. Yes, we're going to be very on trend. <laughs> no, it's, um, speaking of fleshy meat, right? We're here to talk about zombies. And particularly, it's because when we look at a recent argument that I guess has been going around in my circles at least is what's better the show or the game and that being the last of us yep part one as far as the games go we're only going to talk about part one yeah as far as games go but like back in the day like the last of us didn't have a part one and a part two it was just the game yeah um and I would say that I think for me, I really haven't I haven't actually seen the show, and that's because my HBO Max subscription subscri- uh, just expired, and yeah. I have decided not to get it back yet because I'm kind of waiting for um, uh, Our Flag Means Death, like season two or season three or whatever to oh, yeah, also yeah. come out, and then I'll just watch both of them at the same time. I'll be like really sad and then really happy. Like that's it, that's my two trends. So I watched a I've watched a couple episodes of the the HBO series with a friend of mine who has an account and um it's fine it's fine well <laughs> like, so here, I, I don't know. yeah here's the thing is this is 100th episode and we're not really here to kind of debate what's better the show or the game but what we yeah. did want to kind of it, it, like start with that is that that's kind of what we're talking about in AAA is that if you believe the show is better than the game right and i shouldn't say AAA cuz not all of my friends are in AAA now they're in AA which is just really where AAA designers that went to start a new studio uh, okay, long story short is that The Last of Us, when it came out as a game, it was absolutely kind of like mind blowing to the public. Yeah, right? it was it was an epochal moment. And in many it, ways, it sort of it still is very much a touchstone. Yeah, it is very much a touchstone. And I think regardless of whichever studio, whichever title you're working on, using The Last of Us as a shorthand for like a very cinematically driven narrative experience where the entire game almost services this larger story arc. Is yeah. just that's the shorthand for when you go, hey, we're not like The Last of Us, right? It's also a shorthand for we're not doing really great cinematic quality, but The Last of Us <laughs> 2013 didn't really have the best cinematic quality either. Like, I would no. almost argue Battlefield 1 cinematics are now, right, in modern day times, more cinematic than the original there, Last of Us. There is interesting camera work in The Last of Us, but it's not necessarily in sort of the like cutscene moments. It's actually much more interesting in like, gameplay moments no it really is in the gameplay moments so for that note right we actually will be sidestepping the show a little bit to kind of go into the history the encounter design um the story itself the mechanics character and all of the other stuff that you know us for (laughs) as we kind of transition into what made the game so great and what really kind of shifted right, the industry from talking about ourselves as like story-driven games or cinematic games or linear to even using, right, a game title to show we're not doing the, right, Last of Us moment or we're not doing X, Y, Z, right? And why are we still referencing this, right, incredible game? Yeah. So keep listening and exciting for this journey to start. Nicholas, take us All right, so one of the things that I had a, not, not a problem, but sort of like was but nibbling away at my brain as I was trying to think about like how to talk about this is that when I was playing the last of us recently, so this would have been back in like January and early February. Um, I was playing through it. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's, you know, it's a pretty good game. Not earth shattering. Nothing especially like really struck me as like 
this revolutionizes the way I think about video games. And I was like, okay, well, so then I, you know, and then I did my standard thing, which is I go, you know, read reviews and whatnot. And this game is like universe, almost not, not exclusively, almost universally beloved. And I was like, really? No, nobody had any objection to, to do anything in this game ever. And that was very odd to me. Like I did, I, I mean, I did eventually find a couple of, you know, pieces written by, there's actually a really interesting polygon review from around the time the game came out. That is also kind of like, yeah, it's fine. And, and many, many ways sort of sub- summarized my feelings. Like, yeah, it's fine. And so, but the thing is like in the discourse around this game, you, you hear people harping. It's like, oh, the story is so amazing. The story is so great. The story, the story, the story, the story, the story. And I was like, the story's fine. The story's fine. And one of the things that I wanted to point out is that like, though there are some like novel twists on the zombie slash like post-apocalyptic narrative that there was so much media in the like aughts and the the teens you know the 2000s and 2010s that either like was post-apocalyptic or zombie focused or you know combined the two into you know zombie apocalypse and so forth like there's just so much of it and the last of us really sort of fits firmly within that context that you know you could sort of add it to a list of all of those things and you know there are there are a couple of things that I, I mean, I personally think that it's very explicitly drawing from, which is uh, Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, and and then also, you know, the film that came out in, I think it was 2009 that was adapted from it. Like, there's a very clear, like, and Lauren, you had mentioned when we were talking earlier that it seems to draw very explicitly from I Am Legend, which the film came out in 2007, you know, shortly before production began on The Last of Us. So there's just so much stuff that they had to draw from that they weren't really reinventing the wheel in terms of like you know world building actually well world building will come back to but in terms of like you know story-based world building so to speak that it just didn't feel like it was a terribly novel thing right and i think that actually really led to their kind of success in this genre as well i think before kind of this i don't know what it's not so much before i think books right had come out way before, right? Like this sort of 2006, 2008, right? Yeah. We've been talking about post-apocalyptic kind of zombieism forever, right? It was always- Oh, and The Walking Dead of, is another obvious like and, thing that it's drawing from. Right. And The Walking Dead is, a, is huge, super obvious. And that's kind of what I was going to say is that it wasn't really until we got to this sort of humanity's struggle, right? Versus the unknown, versus the fears of extinction, versus like the fear of like existence. Like there wasn't this extra threat that I think in like the popular media- there was kind of this resurgence of like, well, you know, for all we know, it actually could also be the housing crisis, right, of 2008. And then also Facebook starting started in 2010. Or the war on terror. They're, they're very like the war, war on terror. terror. Yeah, yeah. They're, they, after 2001, right? Like yeah. there was a lot going on in this in the early 2000s, particularly in, in America, right? And that's kind of our centered here if we look at the cultural milieu, particularly these titles coming out of America, right? So just yeah. beware well, of global audiences. the game is set in the United States too. And the so, game is yeah. set in the United States, right? But that's what I'm saying is just be aware of global audiences that we're not sure what's going on in your countries. Though I'm sure <laughs> like the war on terror and American politics are a fun topic at the dinner table everywhere we yeah. go. Yeah. Um, but what I would say is that when we look at these titles and we look at, you know, a kind of a cultural moment for video games, right? It was kind of a cultural phenomenon for these post-apocalyptic media, as well as particularly zombie media, right? That was coming out during this time. And there was this type of, 
kind of societal learning and kind of yearning for like in a world like let's say we have really destroyed the entire world because that's how it seems like it's going right and yeah. i think since then apocalyptic literature has continued it wasn't about dystopian right dystopian is about if the world continues we get into this utopic dystopic society right yeah. like a society that seems good on the surface but is actually bad it was no we fuck shit up so much we have caused the apocalypse right yeah. i think yeah, that is the biggest right difference for me literarily is that we had dystopic literature right and we've had dystopic films movies i mean blade runner is a great example just like right off the bat of what i would yeah. consider a little dystopic in the world building and this is where kind of i'm going with this versus post-apocalyptic right like there wasn't an apocalypse in blade runner right like the world just increased or neuromancer for a book reference right yeah. there wasn't it we just kept going Right. And a lot of science fiction was going to dystopia. But now we actually see a trend, not just like in, say, science fiction, right, but also in just speculative fiction in general that it's now, no, the apocalypse has happened. Like yeah. it's going to happen. We are actually going to kill our planet, our Earth, ourselves, the environment. Like there's going to be war. War is going to kill this, et cetera. And one of the easiest, easiest, or one of these ways, <laughs> right, was zombieism. And so yeah. I think this is really important because what really worked in their favor was during this time, Right. Whether they were also having these thoughts about the war on terror, right, what was going on, let's create an apocalypse scenario. This is really what was kind of fueling these types of this type of moment, this type of genre. Well, I think it's also important just briefly to touch on sort of like the changing conceptualization of zombies in popular media, because if you go back to sort of like the, the you know, the, the Romero films, you know, Night of the Living Dead being, you know, the most obvious one there the zombie you can interpret it a bunch of different ways but zombies are in many ways kind of a metaphor for the way in which a large part of the united states was sort of sleepwalking through various crises be it the war in vietnam um the racial reckoning that was happening you know in the late 60s and and especially given the way i'm not going to spoil it given the way the night of the living dead ends like there's a very clear like racial uh cast to a lot of what's going on there to zombies becoming especially after like i i would definitely point to say like danny boyle's uh 28 days later as sort of like figuring the zombie as this like dehumanization this like broad dehumanization or sort of this effect of like you know mankind going too far lauren as you were saying like you know we we as humanity caused the apocalypse to happen rather than the the zombie apocalypse being this sort of like manifestation of a kind of like difficult undercurrent in American society. Like those are two very different things. I, I and I think that's really important here is that in a lot of apocalyptic stories that you get from earlier like wow earlier human history like that was the worst thing to say but sorry but when you look at apocalyptic stories like there's the apocalypse right already comes from this kind of biblical right underpinning. And yeah. I'm pointing that out because when a lot of apocalypse stories are, you know, a meteor hit, right? You get a lot of this in the early 1900s in science fiction, like a meteor hits. Humanity War has the to world's escape being, the yeah, planet. Yeah, yeah. The something is happening that is yeah. natural, right? It's a natural yeah. phenomenon that humans can't control because we don't control nature. We don't control God. We don't control the cosmos, yeah. right? Well, suddenly when we look after the modern period, we recognize that humanity is like, much more like profitable after World War II, right? We all want to avoid World War III. We realized that World War II fundamentally, like we controlled that, 
right? Yeah. Humans were responsible for that. And I think that's kind of like in the postmodernist period, you now get a humans are responsible, right? Yeah. This is during the modern period is trying to come to terms white with the responsibility of humanity's utter destruction. And postmodernism is a, yes, we do cause destruction. What if we just destroyed the whole planet because it's our fault now? And I think yeah. that's this kind of crisis of zombies come out of a like they are a humanoid, right? They are a human. You have to be a human to be a zombie, right? Yeah. And I think that's the struggle of humanity right there that is now my nugget, right, for The Last of Us. So. I want to add one last little thorn before we move on to talking about Uncharted and its relationship to this. And that's that, and this especially comes out of, so I'm, you know, for those of you who don't know, I used to teach um, Japanese studies courses. And in the study of apocalyptic fiction there, there is a lot of theorizing about the way in which apocalypse functions as a kind of reset. And there's this idea that sort of like humanity has gotten itself into this like political slash cultural slash technological bind that it can't get out of. And then the, the apocalypse essentially like resets the human condition back to a point where before it began to diverge down this dark path that, you know, dominated our destiny. And that, I think, is actually another thing that's kind of going on here in, in, the, in The Last of Us. There is this idea that you can sort of like reset the human condition in this extremely brutal way. And that plays out in a lot of the zombie media as well. Like human social relations are transformed. Technological conditions are transformed. And you can sort of like start over from a different baseline. I just wanted to add that as like another point about all no, this. No, 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 no. I, I was silent because I was, sometimes I have the intense <laughs> staring face. And when Nicholas goes, oh, I just wanted to belabor that point. I'm like, no, I am intensely staring at such academic credential. I'm like, oh, why don't I think of it like that? Well, I've I taught mean, this I, in I, several I, classes. That's why I know I, I know. I, I mean, it. no, but exactly. I should. I took those classes. Well, I took some of those classes. Damn yeah. it. Well, now, now we all know that Lauren uh, was not paying attention to my class. I was not That's paying very, attention to your class. No, Lauren was generally paying attention. She was fine. No. Anyway, so I think this is a really great point, though, in that we wanted to also kind of talk about the studio, right? So this yeah. is like the cultural background, but the studio, right, members are part of the cultural background coming into this. Oh well, yeah, Naughty Dog is a, is a culture in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. So like Naughty Dog culture, right? When they were making The Last of Us, we also wanted to kind of hint at, or not hint at, sorry, we wanted to kind of hit hit on the topic of like the development of Uncharted, right? Yeah. Versus the development of The Last of Us. Yeah, and because the the team that, so uh, Druckmann and Straley, who were the, the, the two sort of like co-directors for The Last of Us, um, both came, so there was a team, there was a sort of like a broad creative team that worked on Uncharted 2. And after, you know, Uncharted 2 was a huge success, one game of the year, if I remember correctly. Um, at that point, then Naughty Dog decided to split that like Uber team into two separate teams. One that went on to develop the, the, the subsequent Uncharted games, and then another one headed by Druckmann and Straley that went on to develop The Last of Us and ultimately its uh, sequel as well. And that... And this is important because a lot of that Uncharted DNA is still in The Last of Us, especially if you look at, say, like the combat systems, um, the combat system in uh, see, I'm, I'm both going to state this and problematize it at the same time. The combat system in The Last of Us has a lot of superficial similarities to what you see in Uncharted because in many ways they often use are using the same baseline like 
systems. And when you talk about the combat system, you're specifically talking about the ranged combat system? Yeah, the ran ranged combat specific. Yeah, ranged combat system. I just wanted like, to kind of reiterate that because the melee system was incredibly unique specifically for The Last of Us. Yeah, and that's, and that's, that's, that's the, the complication, system. which is that sort of like, you know, if you think about, you know, a particular scenario in Uncharted 2 where like, you know, there's a bunch of usually Russians who are like standing off at a distance firing at you and you are crouched behind a crate at a distance from them and you're both shooting at each other or lobbing grenades like that is a very even though it uses the same baseline system that is a very different kind of combat from being the guy with a gun joel as literally a clicker is rushing towards you and you have to try and down them before they get on top of you because if they get on top of you you're dead like that is actually a very different subjective experience of combat even if it uses a lot of the same like underlying stuff and so that's what i mean by sort of like problematizing it a little bit because in in uncharted you're generally as drake fighting enemies who have rough similarities to you whereas in the last of us as joel and then later as ellie you are fighting enemies that are sometimes like you because sometimes they are other people but oftentimes are very dissimilar from you in terms of mechanically how you have to sort of engage with them. And that is a really important distinction. Right. And as we kind of like look at that distinction, for me, I think what's funny is that when I played the game, I know that I killed more humans than zombies as Joel. Like I yeah. absolutely was ill-equipped to fight the different AI that represented the zombie force. Um, you can't really choose tried. it. I, I, you, you can't choose it. I cheesed it. I have to admit I, that I cheesed it. <laughs> I don't even know how to cheese it. Like, I'm not going to lie. Is that I tried very hard to have about the you know, same amount of resources, and I would go through these encounters. I would kill pretty much the majority of zombies. And what would happen is I would end up dying at like the very last moment, and I would have to replay the entire encounter again. So the way and to so I the, think, yeah. So the way to choose it was like so you know because you always have like your your companions like within some proximity of you. So what you want to do is you want to move Joel around so that way that like essentially the the companion is leading, and then you use the companion to like tank <laughs> whoever is coming at you, like because because they'll hit the companion first, and even though you do have to like they will eventually overcome your companion, and you'll have to restart the the level. Um, but it does give you enough time to like, you know, aim and shoot them or to like, you know, get around them and, you know, shiv them. I wouldn't say that's them. cheesing. I think that we'll actually get into like how the companion mechanics of this work. So maybe yeah. we, let's bring that up. At yeah, a, I'll, I'll, say, I'll save that I for think, the, for the, for the mechanics. Yeah. But, let's, let's like, not a future date, but like a future, a future <laughs> timestamp. Right? I think for now, what I'm really excited by is when I look at the way that I looked at the level design, I think yeah. my point was that much like um, Uncharted, where you are just like kind of cover shooting, right? You actually yeah. aren't able to cover shoot too effectively in this game, even no. when you have human enemies, because the human enemies, there's so many of them, but they kind of run around you in a similar fashion to zombies. Yeah. So what I really believe for me is that if we look at the development kind of structure of this like organization, when I looked at that, I can go, okay, they're obviously talking to each other. But yeah. quite frankly, right, they're two different games, two different needs. And I think that it's going to be really interesting as we move into the encounter design portion, as Nicholas is calling it, to kind of see the structures of how Nicholas and I played in different ways and yeah. still kind of achieved in some right levels and some like encounters, kind of the same feeling from from those experiences.
yeah, the the combat is strangely like it, it is capacious. Like it allows for a, even though it is very limiting, and if you you feel how limiting combat can be in the game, and I think that's intentional because like it creates this sort of like experience of being beset at all times. It's like, oh god, how the fuck do I get through this? <laughs> and so the reason why I wanted to call this encounter design is that originally when I was trying to think about like, okay, so if it's not the story that's really sort of like grabbing me about this game. What is it that's grabbing me about this game? Cause there is something. And initially I settled on like, well, it must be the level design. Like, because the, the way in which like the level sort of structure, how you have to interact with enemies, how you have to traverse, like, even though it, it may, it's kind of silly, like the fact that, you know, you periodically like look off into the distance, like your ultimate destination, like, it's, it's interesting because it helps orient what feels like just sort of like a sequence of boxes that you're moving through. Like you always have this sense of like where it fits within a series and what its ultimate trajectory is. It's like, but that's not necessarily strictly level design. And so then I was listening to an interview uh, uh, that Mark Brown of Game Makers Toolkit did with a former level designer from Naughty Dog. And there was an offhand comment that, the the designer made that I thought was really interesting because it pointed to how he and his colleagues conceptualize levels not necessarily as sort of like boxes in which things happen or a series of boxes in which things happen but rather as sort of like a diorama for what the level actually is which is sort of a series of I'm going to use an academic term here unfortunately like subjective conditions Meaning that like at this point in this zone or area, environment, whatever, we want the player to feel like X. Then at this point in the zone, we want the player to feel like Y. And then at this point in the zone, we want the player to feel like Z. And Z, then if you reflect back on X, really sort of recolors how that whole thing plays out. So that is the focus. And the reason why I called it encounter design is because that's the thing that seemed closest to what this particular level designer was talking about. And yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say for me, I was struggling with this term for Nicholas before this episode was aired or on the air. Um, because when we look at encounter design, it's very easy to say that an encounter, right, is basically an activity or a usually a combat encounter, right? Yeah, it yeah. could be any sort of gameplay challenge that any sort of level designer, scripter, content designer, narrative designer, like whomever, right? Yeah puts in front of the player and the design of that encounter is, is it going to have a puzzle? Is it going to have a, is it require a companion? Is it a traversal right encounter? Do you need to kind of go through this area? Yeah. Is it a logic right encounter? Is it actually a riddle? Do you have to talk to someone? Is it a combat encounter? Right. Yeah. And so when I look at encounter design, a lot of the times we look at it as encounters, not as a kind of means to an end, right? Not serving a greater purpose. We look at encounters yeah. as like a smaller subsection, right? Of a larger, right? Milieu of gameplay challenges yeah. and mechanics. Yeah. And I struggled with this because I like the more wording of a subjective, right? Con condition, right? Yeah. Or a subjective experience of this area. Because a lot of level designers will tell you that that is how they level design. Like they level design with, this is what I want the players to feel in this moment. Yeah. And I think that, a lot of those level designers tend to come from single player experiences, yeah. right? Not necessarily multiplayer experiences. And I only yeah. mention that because when you look at a multiplayer level or even an open world level, you're not really looking at it as a 
this is what I want the player to feel in that area. You're looking at as a, this is kind of the tutorial area or the starting zone of an MMO where yeah. players are going to be learning the mechanics. And so it just kind of becomes a sandbox. And I think that's why I don't like the sandbox term because yeah. for me, it's yeah. like everything might be toys and you might be playing with it, but you're playing a game, right? It's a simulation at a certain point of your sandbox. Like maybe there's, it's flooded and now suddenly it's a swamp, right? So I think that yeah. there well, is and, something to be said for like how subjective do you make that area, right? Versus yeah. how like objective is that area to serve the purpose of the game? And so I think that the encounter design is a really fascinating way to kind of call it for now, but because well, it's, 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 it's not it's just it's not just that. encounter design. It's also the, the encounter design, but as structured as, and this is why I called it sort of like a series of subjective conditions, because in many ways, it's a series of encounters and the way in which that series works. Because if you look at the way in which sort of the the levels kind of frame and encompass uh, encounters, for lack of a better term, or sort of things that you have to do in the game, there is a kind of plot structure to them, and that's where the that's where the story that's where story. If we're going to talk about it in broader terms, and this is why I said earlier that we sort of, that I sort of held world building off to one side. World building, the traditional sense, not so much. But here we have a very different kind of world building. World building as like, well, you're literally creating a world because you're making you know the container in which these things happen, but. Okay, and it, let's talk about an example. An example is probably a better way to do this. So no, early, yeah. on, early on in the game, a common thing that you have to do is you have to move a dumpster or you have to move something or a ladder into position so that way you can like progress further on to where you need to go. Because like the first sort of stage of the game, like you know, getting Ellie to the Capitol building, this is fundamental, even though it involves combat encounters and whatnot, it's primarily traversal in nature. Like you're trying to get from point A to point Z with you know all of the letters in between as like waypoints. And so there's this common thing that happens where you have to like move a dumpster into position so that way you can climb on top of something so that you can progress. This happens consistently. So this is so this would be the X, or sorry, the X and Y in our sequence, where like you it sort of establishes the X and then the Y. They establish a pattern of this thing that you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to relate to it. Because usually in those moments, it's they're quieter. They don't necessarily involve combat encounters. Like it's literally, you just have to go find the thing that you have to move, move it over, and then you go on. Then you do it again. You find the thing that you have to move over, move over and you go on. And then those moments are interspersed with say combat encounters where like you might be moving through an underground space where there are some clickers and you either have to evade them or you have to try and shove them or whatever. So in, in that instance, like it's both setting up this idea of you have to move a thing in order to traverse while also in a separate instance, setting up this idea of like combat encounters. So there's a moment early on in the game where you sort of like come out into a fairly large open space and then there is a closed building off to the left as you go forward. Tess, who is still with you at that time, she goes forward and she says, oh, okay, we gotta try and find a way around this bus. And you're like, oh, from all those previous moments, I know what I'm supposed to do here. I need to go find the dumpster or whatever the thing is that I have to move and then move it into position and then we can go forward. And similarly, it has a similar set before because initially that's a quiet moment. You move into this big open space and you don't see any enemies. Like there doesn't seem to be any like obvious combat encounters that are going to take place. None of the characters mention it in their dialogue. So it's like, okay, I got to go find the dumpster. And you do. You find the dumpster. Inside of a building surrounded by a bunch of infected. 
And what's interesting is how, like, then sort of once we hit our Z point in that series, this is what I mean by it then sort of recolors, like, that initial expect it's almost set up like a joke but the the, the feeling is not a not a funny one <laughs> the feeling one is kind of an oh shit one <laughs> um and so you go into that because you know you walk into the building it's like oh i'm gonna go grab the dumpster and then you walk into the building it's like oh crap so then you immediately have to reconcept you have to move out of that framework where you're like i have to find the dumpster and movement and then you have to somehow integrate that with the combat thinking the two sort of like things that you've been set up with are now synthesized into this moment. And that is largely a function of level design, but it's not just level design because it's also the way in which sort of like Tessa's dialogue has set you up to think that it's just another one of these quiet moments. It's also like, okay, I recognize this because I've seen the other move the dumpster, you know, moments in the game. Like you have been set up to sort of at first to believe that it's a particular kind of thing. And then it pulls the rug out from under you. And then you have to deal with all the infected. You still have to move the dumpster and, you know, climb over. I think it's a bus that's in the way. I don't remember exactly. But that series of encounters and the way in which sort of like level story dialogue like all even combat because there's combat involved as well like all of those things are sort of like introduced separately along the series and then they are synthesized at the not the end because you know stuff happens after that but to me there's a logical sequence there that has a kind of plot structure to it that is very encounter design centric i think for me the biggest thing that comes to mind when i look at this from a like the level design standpoint is that <laughs> Like some skeptical, you know, people that are listening to this would be like, that's just really good level design. Like because levels is a part of encounters and combat and structure yeah. and narrative and story and even VFX, VO, right? Dialogue. But when you kind of get to the VO dialogue portion and you get to kind of setting up that narrative and setting up the moments of tension, that is just really good level design. But it's also really good moment to moment design. And I think yeah. that that sometimes devalued as a simply trading of punches between two characters, right? Combat design is not moment to moment design, right? Moment to moment design can be the moment between you go from right needing to find that dumpster to switching your thinking to combat to getting the dumpster and having combat, yeah. right? And I think the entire game experience, right, itself is building upon that sort of fidelity because you know if you move the dumpster, it creates noise. You know that you need to kill the zombies but you know you'll be overrun if you kill them too quickly right yeah so i think that there's really something to be said for what you kind of were talking about there with the constrained perspective yeah. and about how they use yeah. the constrained perspective to create those moments of dramatic tension as you move through the levels yeah and that constraint is not always exclusively in terms of like this the series that i i identified oftentimes it literally like so there's that that moment where joel is so you walk into so it's you're you're going to look for bill who's this guy who, that joel knows who lives outside of boston and you walk into a warehouse and all of a sudden a trap springs on joel joel is suspended upside down so that means also that your player perspective has now been inverted and you have to do a thing that you are familiar with from before which is sort of protect ellie from all of the the infected that are coming towards her but you have to do it in this fundamentally different way precisely because the camera has like literally inverted you or um my, one of my favorite moments is when okay we're going to be spoiling things about the game guys so 
No, it's at this point it's 2013. <laughs> like, it's gonna be fine. So anyway, there, there, there is a moment where where Ellie is fighting this guy named David. Actually, I don't need to explain anything other than that. She's fighting this guy named David, and then she gets pushed to the ground, and the camera, th- your player perspective, then goes down with her, and you see the knife that she is reaching for, and you yourself are trying to push her towards it, and the only thing that you see of David is his foot come down as he's stomping on your hand like that constraint as well colors the as i was saying before these subjective conditions that the game is trying to put you in and there, there are a lot of like sort of interlocking parts that come from aspects of game dev that are often siloed and distinct and so like it's actually kind of remarkable that these things are Well, and I think that actually kind of comes down to the production quality of this too, is that they had really multidisciplinary teams kind of all came together for a particular, right, set, set piece. And like, I think that's maybe coming from my like film or like stage play background here when I look at like, this is a set piece, but really in the game development set piece world, when I was in Bill's town and I activated the trap as Joel in the cutscene and flipped over and they inverted my camera to match, right, Joel's, like, he is upside down versus yeah. what they kind of could have done, right? And this is a, this is another alternative, is I see myself from an objective perspective, right, yeah. with the camera being outside and I can kind of move Joel kind of like a normal third-person camera. Well, okay? and that's what they do in Uncharted. like when And when, that's what they do in Uncharted Drake, is that, and then I just, himself, yeah. right. Yeah. But here's the difference. Here's the big difference, right, is that, in Uncharted, I am playing an action kind of adventure game with no elements of horror. Yeah. I am in control. I am Drake. I am Nathan Drake. Okay. You are you are Laura Croft. Yeah. I am Laura Croft. Yep. <laughs> I am no, I am in control. I am in power. I have a hand in the situation. Does that make sense? Yeah. This is a moment of not only surprise, but terror. Yeah. And it's thrilling, right? Like I am yeah. afraid, but there is thrill in the terror, right? There yeah. is this, this this knowingness that I have got to get my shit together. I am constrained in my perspective, right? Yeah. And I think that's what's really important to note is that even though this is a third person kind of game and I have this really wide open third person camera, like I can usually see everything, there are very important moments where when they want me to feel a certain way, right? I felt that. And what's funny is that I also felt the opposite. And the opposite was the cynical game developer going, <laughs> oh, yeah. But Lauren. This is a game. <laughs> and no, I, I really did. As soon as they did that in Billstown, I was like, all right, this is a game. Like, this is good. Damn yeah, it. there. you know, I, I agree. There were a lot of there were a lot of times. Where, I'm not going to say that it was gimmicky because it's not. But I definitely felt like oh, I see what you did there. So, yeah, exactly. I see what you did there. Good job. And the reason why, like, we're spending a lot of time on this, for me particularly, is that this type of level design or encounter design, this type of subjective design is only possible when you look at the subjective experience, right, of your players. Yep. And what's really funny is that, unfortunately, being in the narrative kind of, like, world, a lot of that subjective experience tend to kind of falls on the narrative design plate. Because yep. narrative tends to right hold the reins, so to speak, quote unquote, of what a subjective experience is. But I think for anybody out there who isn't a narrative, doesn't have any classical like story training, isn't an academic, I want you to know that as a former level designer, level design really, right, and moment to moment, right, this type of encounter design can yeah. really make or break and actually inform what the narrative would be, right? Because at the end of the yeah. day, like the player is the interactor. 
right, of this incredible moment. And even if I saw this moment in a TV or film, what I or a show, I don't know if this moment is in the show or not. But what I would say is that if if I saw this in a TV show, I would go, oh, this is fun. Like he's upside down and he has to shoot. Ha ha. But when you play this moment in The Last of Us and you're upside down and you have to defend Ellie and you're just like, Ellie, like, gosh, damn it. Like you, you, you can fucking do this. You can fucking do this. And then Joel himself <laughs> is going, Ellie, you can fucking do this. Get the fuck out of it. Ellie. Right. Like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. OK have to protect her oh shit gotta protect myself oh god a clicker like that moment of tension is only possible when you have this level of cross-disciplinary or interdisciplinary like a weaving right into that moment and i think before we kind of that's what i wanted to say before we move into the more kind of mechanical and systemic things that i was really compelled about this game yeah and the thing is, well, it, it transitions well because that that feeling of being sort of beset, I guess, is the best way I would des- is the way I would describe it throughout the entire game. Like you never feel like you can just rest, and even in moments where the game seems like it can tell you to rest, it, it makes you a little bit paranoid because at one you you do wonder like, okay, so when is it going to pull the rug out from under me? Like, what is the next like effed up thing that's going to happen that is going to make me feel bad about the fact that I thought I could finally just like <gasps> take a breather. And a lot of that works in the way, so another like primary constraint of the game is sort of like the relationship that you have as like whichever player character you are at a given time, usually Joel, sometimes Ellie though, and your companions. And so, you know, not just like your constant companion in the form of Ellie, but also your incidental companions like um, like uh, Sam or Tess or uh, Bill at one point, uh, you, you don't well, I mean Marlene briefly at the beginning but anyway the point is is that you instead of like being the Nathan Drake character where you're the hero you're like the rugged individualist or you're only thinking about yourself you have to have this kind of like paranoid hyper awareness of the people around you because the thing is like if if in a given like moment if Tess is being attacked by a clicker and you don't fight off the thing that is like killing her in that moment guess what you lose and you'll have to re- like restart over have to start the whole encounter all over and that kind of awareness that kind of like it's not a camera constraint on your perspective but it's almost sort of like a conceptual constraint on your perspective because you're not necessarily thinking about how am i going to do this like awesome like shimmy across a ledge or how am i going to jump from one place to another it's like you both have to think about traversal but at the same time maintain this like focus on your immediate surroundings as well that the uncharted games don't necessarily um, emphasize and so i think we should probably talk about sort of the companion system and the way in which it is very different from sort of like the way in which games traditionally sort of think about how to sort of structure the relationship between you as the player character and the sort of these like npc like the close npcs i guess is what i would say So for me, the biggest thing about The Last of Us was the companion system. Like really, I think at the end of the day, while I agree that the level design is phenomenal, and it was largely influenced by the narrative design process as well, right? They were very much hand in hand. And then the encounter designs within those levels, even if they were just all level designer, right? The level designer wasn't just building a space or creating a level or a map. They were actually creating a narrative and subjective experience for the player. All of that for me was made possible because of the companion system and the companion animations, right? And the way in which those okay. companions reacted and responded to the player. So the first thing I think that we are going to talk about 
for me, right, Nicholas, and I'm going to go ahead and take this one, is yeah, that sure. when we see classic companion design, yeah. right? We look at you're a single player and you need your D&D party to get through a level, yeah. right? The game was balanced for four players in your party. And just like in Dragon Age Inquisition, you essentially can mix and match between your best friends and go on really cool adventures. Yep. Sometimes you'll hear dialogue or sometimes you can choose to just ditch your companions and be, play solo in Dragon Age. Yeah. And you can take on that bear and it's meant for four <laughs> players and you can try to take him down, right? I think an additional uh, way that Nicholas was looking at companions as well was kind of as more of an objective slash, I say objective, uh, like force, yeah. but also they give you objectives. Yeah, it was just funny because yeah, I was yeah. making like a weird yeah. wordplay pun there yeah, accidentally. Yeah. But mostly what they do is just kind of explain what you're doing. Yeah. Now to the jargon of many Halo players out there, I don't consider Cortana a companion. I do consider a central narrative figure, but she's not really someone who is a companion. It's someone who becomes, right, a parasocial companion um, to Team Master Chief. That in of itself yeah. is a whole thing, but the reason why I bring up Cortana, right, and the reason why I bring up, say, any voice on the radio, Maria Hill in Marvel's Avengers, right? Like, you wouldn't consider Maria Hill a companion. You technically wouldn't consider your... Uh, yeah, friends, if you play, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like friends in a multiplayer game companions. But technically, right, systemically, we looked at if you're playing Kamala Khan and you have Hulk, right, Captain America and Iron Man on your team, they're yeah. essentially your companions, right? Like yeah. they're getting you through this piece of combat. And companion AI, right, just in combat alone is huge. But the biggest distinction, right, between, say, these four-player games and this two-player, right, experience of The Last of Us right? Is that because it's two players, right? You're able to kind of look at the relationship at a very intimate level yeah. because there's only one other foil, right? To your experience as the player, but also your experience as Joel, right? There is only, and it's not just Ellie, right? But there's only the other person. There's Tess, there's Ellie. Uh, I think there's, there's Bill. No. Bill, Bill yeah, Bill, Bill. Bill's briefly with you. Yeah. yeah. Bill is briefly a companion. Um, and what's his brother's name is Tommy. Yeah. Right. And so the biggest thing for me is recognizing how do they treat, right, Ellie versus Sarah, just very from the very beginning. And that Sarah is not your companion, okay? Sarah is your, like, a person to protect. But what they do is they start you in the game as Sarah. Now, this is very important. Yeah, you play as it's, Sarah, that's and right. And you play yeah. as Sarah. This is very, very important because if we look at kind of what we're talking about with the encounter design, but I really am honing in on this as the companion and like mechanical level is that you start the game as Sarah and you end the game as Ellie. And they are because to Joel, yep. they have become the same person. But what you don't see- Very problematically, by the way. <laughs> very problematically, okay? Yeah. But what you don't really see and understand is that this book ending of this experience all comes down to Joel's kind of rebirth and struggle, right, with the paternal within, right? Yeah. The, yes, the greater context, but you really get this within the specific companion interactions right between Ellie and Joel. And I think this is really what became the heart of this experience for so many players was yeah. seeing their, at the surface level, you can see how their banter changes, right? But, and you know, and I call it the surface level because that's what you see in here, right? You can see the story between these characters change. Yeah. You can see the relationships emotively, right? And how they look at each other in facial cutscenes. Yeah. But what's super, super telling is that 
in the next to last level, bus depot versus the Firefly Lab. Ellie is coming to terms. And you as a player can, I hope, see this. And if you didn't see it, then that's fine. Go replay the level. Um, Ellie is coming, or go watch it on YouTube. Ellie is coming to terms with the fact that she is never going to see Joel again. Like she knows it. There's something inside of her that knows that this is the end. Yeah. Not the beginning. And Joel's going, this is the beginning. Because once we get through this, I get to spend like the rest of my time with you. Yeah. Okay. Like this is how Joel's seeing it. He's like, this is just one adventure and a grand adventure. And Ellie is going, it's not. And you can actually see that the way that the companion mechanics that have always performed at 100%, you the player in charge, Ellie is now in charge as an NPC, right? Yeah. And I think that that is so much of a credence to her character that my heart actually emotionally dropped. Like that was the first time where I went, okay, the story, it's not the story that has something. It's like this mechanical way in which they change the companion because- I needed to get up to like, I needed to lift her up to uh, to get on, you know, to traverse, right? So she can lift me up. Yeah, and yeah. she wasn't coming. She was sitting down and moping. I wanted to have these optional conversations with her. And she was just not talking back to me. They ended up, right? And that is how global systems and a gameplay system and a mechanic of just like having a UI prompt appear over a character's head. So yeah. simple. So obvious. And yet... <laughs> They just shut down the conversations. They just cut yeah. the writing, right? Yeah. And instead of making it this beautiful bonding moment between two characters, they actually like bonded because they weren't talking. I really, I'm really glad that you brought up the sort of, I mean, I remembered this, but the, the book ending of Sarah at the beginning and then Ellie at the end and sort of like Joel's character arc through those because it is probably intentionally a parallel to precisely what we were talking about in terms of like the way in which series of encounters are conceptualized because the thing is like Sarah is the setup for how you think about Ellie and in many ways Ellie begins her journey with Joel from that perspective as well because like Ellie's story is in many ways a kind of like coming of age slash Bildungsroman in which like she she starts off not terribly capable but develops capabilities over the course of the game that in many way mirror Joel's but what's kind of effed about that is that okay the point that I made earlier is then that like sort of the 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 end term of the sequence is then supposed to make you reconceptualize how you thought about the primary term of the sequence and so if you think about sort of what was Sarah like what was Sarah's end like the whole, the whole, like what's, what gets the, the game going at the end of the prologue is Sarah's murder. And even though Ellie is quote unquote saved at the end, like in many ways, Joel's attempt to try and sort of like make up for what happened to his daughter with Ellie creates this very perverse, almost like tragic sequence for Ellie because the thing is like and this is very much in keeping with the classic Bildungsroman like nowadays we tend to think of coming of age stories as like you know a a kind of happy trajectory or sort of like a comic trajectory where like you know things begin in kind of a you know a messed up state but eventually like come together and resolve themselves but the thing is like that's not really what happens to Ellie Ellie goes from a kind of semi-stable life to one where the probably the most important person in her life at that point has lied to her in a profoundly fucked up way. 
And so it establishes this like pseudo parent child relationship that if you then go back and sort of like reflect on Joel's relationship with Sarah at the beginning, it's like, is this trying to tell me that actually there was something fundamentally fucked up about that as well? I, I don't I know. Read, I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't wouldn't. Know. I wouldn't read too much into it. But what I would say is, what's really interesting to denote here is that The Last of Us has very strong core central theming about the face of humanity and the struggle of humanity in a cruel and harsh world. Yeah. And I think that when we look at the struggle of humanity, it is very important for me to note that when I played the game, I had no problem murdering humans. And like I said, I think at the beginning of this episode, I murdered more humans than I did zombies. And quite frankly, it's because um, zombies are terrifying. And also zombies hurt harder and clickers uh, are very easy to sneak around. Like I could get very close to a clicker and just being super quiet. Like, cause I'm actually not afraid of, of that. What I am afraid of is having to restart the level 10 times that I had to do once and finally went, I'm just not killing any of the zombies. And I didn't, I killed zero zombies in bus depot. Don't ask me how I did that. I really don't know, but I literally killed zero of those like four juggernauts at the end. And I just ran through. Um, (laughs) And I think that that's important to note. Because yeah. humanity killed Sarah. Humans yeah, that's true. killed her with guns, yeah. okay? Yeah. Um, and at the end, humans would have killed Ellie for humans, right? With yeah. knives, right? And I yeah. know that it's like two very different contexts and two different situations. But for a main character protagonist, right, in a struggle of humanity his enemy was never the zombie apocalypse. Like it wasn't the zombies. Yeah. That was who he was fighting. Right. But the enemy was humanity. And at the end, like, right, we could then go super right meta subjective and say, well, the enemy was himself. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) yes, Joel. And yes, literary scholars out there. The enemy is always man versus himself. But if we could just pause, pause for a moment. um, I think that is these multiple layers, right? Yeah. That is what when people talk about, right, the story is incredible. Is I don't think they're talking about the story. Right? They're not talking about the plot. They're not talking about the structure. They're not talking about Joel and Ellie's like relationship, right? They're talking about how they felt yes. when they experienced those layers as a narrative experience in the game. Yeah, and in in I wish I could remember I don't remember the episode number, but I will link to it in the show notes. We did an episode on what we refer to as subjective progression, which is this concept that we're developing in the book project that we were working on. And it is that sense of like how what the player is, sorry, what the character who is your avatar or who is your focus for whatever reason in the game, like what they are experiencing maps or fails to map onto what you, the player, are feeling, like that kind of design is so crucial so hard, so incredibly subtle, because the thing is, if you do it overtly, like The Last of Us Part Two did, people actually really abreacted to it. Like when they knew, when it was very explicit that like, that's like, hey, look, I'm it's like I'm doing this thing where it's like you experience it from this player's perspective, this character's perspective. Now you experience it from this character's perspective. But because of the fact that like Ellie, even though you play as Ellie and Joel, you don't actually see the same events from their two perspectives. You it, it, it works on you in a much more subtle way. And as a result of that, it very carefully crafts and it's not just feelings. You're right to say that earlier because it's also about sort of 
the only way I can describe it is a kind of like subjective condition. This idea of like, I'm creating a set of, for lack of a better term, psychological circumstances for my player using all of the tools that are available to me in terms of game design. And so the story doesn't actually have to be that novel or innovative or whatever, because it's really at the level of execution that so much of this is playing out. That's what we wanted to emphasize in this episode. And with that, thank you all so much for listening to this 100th episode of the Fudadashi podcast. Until next time, you can look, listen to us more on patreon.com slash furudashi. And we will see you then. Bye.